Well, this morning we are uh, continuing a sermon series that we've been in for a number of months now through the Gospel of John. You know, we're, uh, we are working, as, uh, as we are in the year, we're working towards uh, Good Friday, uh, towards the Passion, towards the Resurrection. In John, we're nearing the end of the story. We're now, uh, this morning, in John 18, the story of Jesus' arrest, uh, Peter's denial, his trials before the high priest and Pilate. And so, uh, we are going to look uh, at this, uh, in many ways, sad story, uh, but yet a story that, through the resurrection... Uh, has become for us uh, a story of good news and great hope. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is from John 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kindred, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, the the story uh, that we're looking at today, Jesus' arrest and his trials, the hours leading up to his cross, truly do make up some of the darkest hours in human history. Humanity uh, at its absolute worst. You know, we're going to see in this chapter the trial of Jesus. But beyond that, uh, it really is the trial of the whole world. In this trial, not only is a verdict uh, rendered about Jesus... But in its pages, there's also rendered a verdict about the state of our hearts, the state of the the world and what we've made of it. You know, I was uh, reminded that trials often reveal not only something about the person on trial, but about the the person rendering the verdict and the people around it. Think about um, the O.J. Simpson trial, right? Uh, You may have remembered, like, I think it was last year. Somehow the O.J. Simpson trial came right back into kind of the middle of mainstream culture. There was an Emmy-winning TV show uh, following the trial and and all its ins and outs. There was a documentary, I think, that also won Emmys about O.J. Simpson's trial. And what's interesting about it, why it came back up into public consciousness, isn't just because of of O.J.'s crime, alleged, um, or what, what happened around it. Right? The reason that, it, that it's so prevalent, the reason that we still talk about it decades later now, is because of what it revealed at the time about the state of our culture. 
right? It not only gave us a verdict about OJ, but it also gave us a verdict about things like the state of race in America at the time. The differing ways that white, white Americans and black Americans uh, reacted to the trial, many. It also shedded some light, didn't it, about distrust towards the police department and prejudice uh, within its ranks. Stories that continue to play out. It also revealed something about the way that celebrity dominates everything else in American life, right? And so not only was it a trial of one man, but it kind of held up a mirror to say, hey, this is the, this is the state of your culture. This is some of what's going on around the trial. And in the same way, and actually a much, much deeper way, the trial of Jesus not only renders a verdict in Jesus's life, but it, all, it is also the trial of the whole world. In this moment, in the way that we treat Jesus, in the way that, that Jesus is handled in these hours, it shows that the human race, for all of our pious-sounding talk about our hunger for God and our longing to know Him, that when He actually came near to us, we killed Him. When He actually came near to us in love in a gross miscarriage of justice, we murdered the Son of God. And so it shows not only a verdict and a trial of Jesus, but a trial of his followers, a trial of the rulers, and a trial even, we'll see, of you and me. And so first, we're going to look at the trial of the world in this story. Our story begins when Jesus and his followers go. Uh, they leave the upper room where they've been for four chapters in John. For the last four chapters, it's been Jesus teaching and praying over his disciples. And now they go to a garden between them and the Mount, Mount of Olives. It's a garden that Jesus often went to, we're told, to pray, to enjoy time with his disciples. And so Judas knew where to find him. And it says that they entered in to a garden. You know, in the scriptures, uh, the garden is often a place of testing and trial. Our first parents in the Garden of Eden were tested. They were tested uh, for their faithfulness to God's covenant, and Adam and Eve broke covenant with God. They turned their back and betrayed God. Here now, uh, the beginning of the passion story, the story that will undo what was done in the Garden of Eden, starts once again in a garden. One of the church fathers, Cyril of, Cyril of Alexandria, put it this way, the place was a garden typifying the paradise of old. For in this place, as it were, all places were recapitulated, and our return to humanity's ancient good condition was consummated. For the troubles of humanity began in the garden of paradise, and while Christ's suffering now begins in this garden of passion. And so here, once again in the garden, we see a testing. Jesus' testing begins here in the garden, and in it we see the depth of the world's true evil. You know, really at every level over this chapter, we see Jesus uh, made victim in some ways to the world's evil. His own followers, his closest friends, betray him and deny him. Judas betrays, Peter denies. His own people, the people of Israel, conspire against him uh, and demand his murder. And then the most powerful empire in the world, the Roman Empire, becomes complicit in choosing to take this one that even Pilate, their ruler, acknowledges is without guilt and taking him to the cross. And so at every level, uh, we see what's wrong with the world. You know, that's an interesting question. What's wrong with the world? 
Every, every religion, every system of philosophy seeks to answer this question in some way. Right? If we can acknowledge and know what's wrong with the world, then we might begin to get some idea of how to put it back together again, about what's required of us in the face of it. But we don't all agree, do we? When we look out or we look in and we ask what's wrong with the world. You know, people of a more conservative or traditional leaning often say that what's wrong with the world is uh, individual responsibility. Right? What's wrong with the world is the fact that on an individual level, we, we lack character, we lack virtue, we lack ethics. And so the individual breaks down, the family breaks down. Right? Very often, traditional worldviews, conservative folks, look to the failures of individual morality when we seek to answer what's wrong with the world. And we think that if individual hearts could be changed, then the world could be remade. Right? People of a more progressive leaning often say, no, no, what's wrong isn't moral. It's not primarily individual. What's wrong with the world is corporate, right? It's the systems of injustice, the systems of prejudice. It's, it's social breakdown. And what we need is, is social justice, right? What we need are the broken and corrupt systems of the world to be made right, to be made more just. And if we could just do that, then the world would have a brighter future. And so which is it? What does uh, the actions and the story of, of Good Friday, this Friday morning, tell us? Yes, right? There is ample evidence in this story for, that humanity has broken the world both at an individual level, at a moral level, but then when broken and corrupt moral beings get together and form institutions and form culture, those things also are broken. And so first we see the breakdown and the failure of the human heart in this story, right? It doesn't get much worse as evidence of the frailty and corruption of the individual human heart than what we see in Judas. His betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And we were talking through this story around our breakfast table one morning. And my own son asked, Dad, was 30 pieces of silver a, a lot of money? Was this like millions and millions of dollars? No, it really wasn't. Uh, this was a small to medium amount of money, right? Uh, th this, was, this was a couple weeks' worth of wages. For exchange, Judas hands over, hands over the second person of the Trinity, the one who had been, the one he, he trusted and followed as Messiah, as teacher, as Lord. He chooses some small prophet over a God in flesh. And so we see the depths the depths of the selfishness of the human heart. In Peter's denial, which we're only going to skim over this week, we'll look at it more fully in a couple of weeks, but in Peter's three times denying his, his Lord, we see the cowardice of the human heart. Yeah. Right? Peter is, is at a place where as Jesus heads towards his trial and to his death, Peter is three times asked, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter says, no, no, not me. You've got, you've got me mistaken for somebody else. He chooses self-protection. He chooses his own comfort, his own well-being over the suffering of Jesus. And in that we see that if the human heart is capable of that, if it's capable of the kind of greed that would betray Jesus, if it was capable of the kind of cowardice that would deny him, that it's capable of virtually anything. And human history, uh, of course, is a catalog of how that's been played out. And friends, the same heart that beat in Judas' chest, the same heart that failed in Peter's chest, 
is the same one that you and I have in ours, right? We are just as selfish. We are just as greedy. We are just as frail. We are just as capable of betraying our God and do on a daily basis as the people in this story, right? Adam and Eve, their first sin, you know, you can read it and go, what was the big deal about an apple? What was the big deal about getting a mix-up on which produce they chose? But the big deal is that they too chose to betray their God, chose to turn their back on their God, seeking life outside of His covenant, outside of His love, outside of His care, thinking that they knew best what they needed in their lives. And so they chased after it. And here too, to Judas, here does Peter, And so in that, we see uh, the weakness of our hearts and the depth of individual corruption. But we also see an incredible amount of corporate uh, injustice in this passage. The devastating effects that when betrayers and deniers of God get together, the damage that we can do. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, you can read over that, but pause and go, what, what on earth leads to a situation where the chief priests and the teachers of, God, of, of God's religion, of, uh, the teachers of Israel, are able to gin up for themselves an army, are able to, within, within a, uh, an alliance with the Roman Empire, procure an army of soldiers to bring to, to prosecute the situation? We see in there the, the deadly alliance that can happen when religion is co-opted by the forces of political power, the, the forces of this Roman Empire. And so there they come, and then you get this other, this other picture, the back part of verse 3. They went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Right? This, this looks like, if you look at one of the old movies where the, 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 the peasants go out to get Frankenstein, or in the Beauty and the Beast when they go and storm the castle, right, with pitchforks and, and lanterns and improvised weapons, or to choose stories from our own nation's broken past. This is, this is a lynch mob. This is a group of people taking justice into their own hands and going to seek to, to, to put a man to death apart from a fair trial. Right? Remember, this is Friday morning. This is the early hours of Friday morning. Within the, the course of a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be brought first to the chief priests and then to Pilate. And by noon, he's on the cross. By the end of the day, he's dead. When you think about it on that timeline, you see that this whole thing, is a, it's a joke of a trial. Yeah. Right? It was never meant to discern whether or not Jesus is who he says he is, whether or not he could back up his claims about himself. This is an attempt, uh, pure and simple, to murder Jesus apart from a trial. So think about that for a moment. The God of justice... Right? The God who brings moral order to his world. The God who rules over his world as judge and one day will hold all people to account is himself in these moments the victim of injustice. Is himself in these moments uh, able to, to join in solidarity with all of those who've suffered unjustly in our world over its history. And so we see in this moment the failure of the human heart, and the failure of human culture here in the betrayal 
and trial of Jesus. But in the midst of all of that, you know, it's not, it's not human weakness and evil that ultimately leads Jesus to the cross. You notice that little detail in the story when they come to Jesus and Jesus says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they fall over. They just fall down. They pick themselves up again. They say again, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. Right? This is, this is a man whose word spoken had the power to knock them over. Right? This is the same Jesus that over the course of the Gospel of John, over and over again, you may have recognized those words, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. It's this point that John has been at pains to show us. That the voice who speaks in Jesus of Nazareth is the same voice that spoke from the burning bush. It's the same voice that spoke from the cloud of glory to reveal himself to Moses. I am, I am that I am. And when the deity, when God himself speaks and says, I am, they fall over themselves. Right, that shows if Jesus could bowl them over with a word, that he is victim of nothing here. Right, that it's not the power of the Roman Empire, it's not the corruption of the Israelite priests, it's not even the selfishness of Judas that leads Jesus to the cross. It's nothing but his own power and his own love. His own committed love. That as he says here, none those whom the Father has given him shall be lost. Right earlier, Jesus has told us in the Gospel of John, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And here he says to the, to the army, to the, to the lynch mob, I'm the one you're after. Let these others go. And Jesus himself heads to his trial and to his crucifixion. And so the second thing we want to look at is the trial of Jesus. Who is Jesus shown to be when he's put on trial? So we're going to, because of the length of our text, we're going to skip over a portion of the middle here. So basically what happens is the, the crowd takes Jesus first to the chief priests. The chief priests find him guilty of blaspheming by claiming equality with God. But they, as the Israelites, they didn't have any power. Remember, at this time, Israel was living as a subjugated people under the Roman Empire. And so they couldn't dole out justice on their own. It would have been, it would have been to subvert Rome. And so the priests and the people take Jesus to Pilate, the governor who ruled under Caesar over this particular province. And so they bring him to Pilate. And picking up uh, again in verse 33... So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? 
After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. You know, Jesus, uh, his crucifixion times up with the Passover feast in Israel. So people from all over Israel and and all over the world in which the Jews had been dispersed came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, this great feast where they remembered God's redeeming work in setting them free from slavery in Egypt. And what they would do when the the festivities would stretch and it it was a full and rich time. But at the center of the Passover commemoration. At its center was a remembering of the Passover meal that the Israelites celebrated uh, just before they left Egypt in the Exodus when they were to take a lamb, a lamb that was commanded to be one without blemish, one without spot, sacrifice the lamb, smear his blood on their door so that God's angel would pass over, eat the meal in haste, and then leave. And so it was a a celebration with sacrifice at its center. When they celebrated the Passover, the Jewish families, they would sacrifice their own lamb. But there would be one lamb called the lamb for the people. That would be taken at the beginning of the Passover, led into the courtyard of the temple where it would be staked to the ground. So set set on a leash and, and set there in the ground. For the priests and the people to examine the lamb, to make sure that it was a lamb without spot or blemish. Because the the symbolism at the center of the Passover was that an unblemished lamb would die so that God's justice could pass over his blemished people, his sinful people. Remember the way that John starts his gospel. When John the Baptist sees Jesus there by the river, he says three times, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' entire life, really, has been an examination, right? We've seen throughout the Gospel of John how the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were constantly examining Jesus, asking him questions, trying to catch him in the midst of some moral failure, in the midst of some heretical teaching. Jesus' life was an examination. Now, here at his arrest, he's examined by the chief priests. He's examined by them. And then he's given to Pilate, given to the highest officer in the land for examination to see, is this lamb, is this one guilty or guiltless? Is he blemished or is he unblemished? And so this trial on Friday morning would have taken place virtually at the exact same time that in the temple the priest was examining the lamb and saying, I find this lamb to be without blemish. And so when Pilate says, I find no guilt in him, he says it three times, once here in our our passage, twice in the first part of chapter 9, Pilate says in the exact same words, I find no guilt in him. It's for John to show us that Jesus is the lamb without blemish. He is the one without guilt. He is the lamb who's able to be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. When he dies on Passover, when he dies as a sacrifice, he dies as a guiltless sacrifice. Because he dies not for his own guilt. 
He dies not for his own transgressions, not for his own sin, but he dies for our guilt. He dies for the sin of the world, a spotless, a spotless lamb without blemish. So the first thing that comes up in Jesus' trial is that he is a sacrificial lamb. He is an absolutely innocent lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But beyond that, he's shown to not only be a lamb, but also to be a king from beyond this world. Notice uh, what he says when he's questioned. Pilate asks him right out of the gate, are you the king of the Jews? You have to understand, Pilate didn't care at all about whether or not there was a Jewish religious teacher teaching things that the Jews didn't agree with. If you're the, you know, a governor under Caesar, that's not a blip on your radar. You don't care about Jewish religion. What you care about is somebody claiming to be king. What you claim about, what you care about is somebody claiming to be the king of the world and in, or the king of the Jews and in claiming to be the Messiah, the redeemer of the world. Because that's a claim that, that, that directly contradicts your own claim, that directly contradicts Caesar's own claim. And so Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And notice Jesus doesn't, doesn't really answer him directly, but he doesn't say no. When Pilate asks him if he's a king, he doesn't, you know, think about this, the trouble that could have been saved. If Jesus said, no, 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 this is all a big misunderstanding. I'm not a king. I'm a religious teacher. I'm more like a rabbi than I am like a king. Just, all right, good. This could all be cleared up. It was a clerical mistake. Uh, let me go. But he doesn't say that. Instead, what he says is, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. So he says, I am a king, but I'm a different kind of king. I'm a different kind of king, such a king that, that he doesn't even uh, risk answering it directly. Because if you answer what kind of king is Jesus by looking at the kings of this world, you'll get it all mixed up. Right? Pilate shows us what the kings of this world are like. Pilate shows us what a kingdom that is of this world looks like. Right? Look at what Pilate does in this chapter. Pilate announces Jesus to be without guilt. And yet, in the face of an angry mob crying out for his death, he's willing to kill an innocent person in order to, to placate the crowd, in order to keep his own rule. And this is, this is always what the kings of this world do, what the dictators of this world do, is they will always trade innocent life to preserve power. They're, they're always willing to trample over justice in order to preserve the power that they have accumulated for themselves. And so Jesus says, if that's what a king does, then my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. It's an otherworldly kingdom that comes to this world, not, giving, not taking life, but giving life. Not trampling justice, but bringing justice. And so, Jesus comes as a lamb and as a king. Right, we've seen that that the world and its problems, we both have corrupt human hearts, sinful hearts in need of forgiving. And so to us, he comes as a lamb. And we also have a broken world, a world of injustice in need of being made right. And he comes as a king. You know, and if you miss out on either one of those pictures of Jesus, you miss out on the gospel. Right? If you, if you, if you take a Christianity 
and remove out of it the bloody sacrifice of the lamb, you gut Christianity of its power. Right? Christianity without a spotless lamb giving his life for guilty people has no power for forgiveness. It has no power to set a human heart free of guilt and shame. It has no power to turn our very hearts and lives around from sinful, selfish, and corrupt to loving and God-honoring and humble. Right? It's the sacrifice of the Lamb that gives the gospel its power to change our hearts. Right? If you take that out of the church, if you take that out of Christianity, the church simply becomes a social club or a club for political action. You can't have Christianity without the bloody cross and the sacrifice of the Lamb. But if you take away the king, right, if you take the kingship out of Jesus so that he's simply an innocent lamb who dies for our salvation, you take the power of Christianity to change the world out of it, right, that he comes not only as a, as a lamb so that our consciences can be at rest, so that we can know that we're accepted, so that we can know that we're not guilty before God. But he also comes as a king to challenge this world, to bring justice and wholeness and holiness to all of the corrupt and broken places of this world. You know, when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, it doesn't mean that his kingdom doesn't uh, have implications for this world. Right? There's a, there's a strand of teaching in the church in its history that has basically taken that verse when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, to mean that the kingdom is spiritual, right? So that the kingdom should only, the church should only ever be worried about preaching and sacraments, baptizing babies, serving the Lord's Supper, preaching good sermons. And we shouldn't meddle or worry about the affairs of this world, right? A doctrine called the spirituality of the church uh, bubbled up conveniently enough uh, in the Southern Presbyterian Church in the pre-war era right before the Civil War, uh, is an effort of, of theologians and pastors to assure their plantation-owning members that God had no interest in human rights. God had no interest in whether or not they kept slaves or different. God didn't. God's concern was his kingdom was not of this world. They interpreted it to say that's what this verse means. Of course, of that, we have to say that's ridiculous. Right, that Jesus, though he's not a king like the kings of this world, he is a king. He is a king that demands obedience. He's a king that demands justice and equity. One day, his kingdom will stretch from shore to shore. One day, his kingdom will eradicate every broken and unjust and violent thing in this world. Until that day, he rules through his church. As we seek to align our lives and to bring our lives, to bring our institutions, to bring our hopes in greater alignment with who he is and what he says and what he claims. Because the vision that's revealed in Revelation by the same author, by the author of the Gospel of John, is of a lamb on a throne. A lamb on a throne, a sacrificial lamb ruling the universe as its king. And until then, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, the great hope of our lives is that you are the lamb who was slain and the king who's resurrected and returning to rule. Lord Jesus, we know and we trust that in your guiltless, spotless life and death, 
that you have made it possible for us, dressed in your righteousness, to be accepted as your children. And that you, as our King, call us to live our lives under your rule. Call us uh, to announce this hope in word and in deed. Because our hope uh, is wrapped up in the Lamb who sits on the throne. The Lamb around whose throne uh, the angels cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. And so, Lord Jesus, the Lamb who reigns, we pray that you would reign in our lives as our King. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.